because he is risen. Thank you, Stephen. We'll try that again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Have a seat. Open God's words to the book of Mark, where Dick was reading a few minutes ago. Mark chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are living, that your son Jesus Christ died, but it was impossible for death to keep him. We thank you that he rose again in victory over Satan. Father, as we look into your word today, challenge us to be different next Sunday than we are today. That we will grow, that our lives would, that we wouldn't be content with where we're at, but that we would strive to push forward, that we would press on and finish well. Father, open our eyes to your word today, we pray. May your Holy Spirit give us power and and give us wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus comes into the area, into the country of the Gesserines, to the area of Decapolis, and a man approaches him, a man demon-possessed. The demons in him right away recognized that this was Jesus, the Son of God. They didn't need any introduction. They knew who he was. And they begged him to not send them out of the country. So there was some swine there. And it said that there was about 2,000 of them. And the demons went into the swine and they ran over the cliff. Didn't make the herdsman too happy. And it made the owner of the herd even less happy. So they were saying, Jesus, get out. We don't want you here. You've destroyed our livelihood. All the swine are dead. They drown in the ocean. Get out of here. We don't want you here. And as Jesus is departing, if we look, uh, let's see. In verse 17, they began to entreat him to depart the region. Uh, entreat, I think, is just kind of a too sweet of a word. Uh, they, they were a little, little more aggravated and agitated than, than that word kind of sounds like. They wanted him gone. They were angry. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. He says, I want to follow you. What you've done for me, you have changed my life. The demons are gone. I am a new person to follow you. Verse 19, Jesus did not let him, but Jesus said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And here's the... here's. The, the second part that's just as key as the first part. One is Jesus telling him to go. And the second was that he actually did it. He went. 
Verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everybody knew who this was. This was the man who for years lived in the, in the graveyard. He, he, they'd try to bind him with chains and he'd break the chains right off. This character was, was a familiar individual to that area. And they now saw what a different man that he was. Turn a few pages over with me to Mark chapter 8. In those days again, when there was a great multitude, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitude because they've remained with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their home, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from a distance. His disciples answered, Where will anyone be able to find enough to satisfy these men with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus says, How many loaves do you have? They said, We have seven loaves, and oh yeah, there's a few fish. So Jesus broke them, and they passed them out. And guess what? They all had enough to eat. And, verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. They picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over the broken pieces. And about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. But, but pastor, what does this have to do with the demon man that was healed? Look back in verse 31 of chapter 7. And again he went out <laughs> Again he went out from the region of Tyre and he came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. For 3 days these people hung on every word that Jesus said. Back in chapter 5 they were telling him to get out of Dodge. Get out of here. We don't want you here. Why is he welcomed now? through the testimony of that one man that was so changed. And he went about and he told them what Jesus had done for him. And when Jesus came back to the area, the people clung to every word he said. They wanted to hear the message he had because of the testimony of that one man that was healed and the demons were cast out. Turn with me now to the book of Acts. The testimony of one cannot be underestimated. Can you imagine that if the meth heads in in Newberry were saved and they did a turnabout, the testimony for Jesus' sake, if the town prostitute came to Jesus and her life turned around, the town drunk, the testimony of one is absolutely amazing. In chapter 3, as Peter and John were entering the temple, a lame man cried out, begging for something. And Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I do have I'll give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazarene, get up and walk. The man began leaping. In the temple, shouting, praising God for what had been done for him. 
He couldn't, he couldn't contain himself. And the people said, hey, that guy for 40 years, he's been being carried here and set outside to beg. We, we recognize that fellow. We've given that guy money before. And now he's leaping and praising God. And as we, as we worked our way through chapter 3, let me get where I need to be here. Last week we were talking about the city of refuge. The Old Testament law that was set up. Because that's what Peter was making reference to in his sermon in verse 17 of Acts chapter 3. I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking about the Jews that killed Jesus. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance. If, if you, in the Old Testament, if you accidentally killed somebody, there was a city of refuge that you could run and be safe in. You'd receive mercy there so that the avenger of death from the man's family that you killed wouldn't come and kill you. You were safe there. And you were there until the high priest died and then you were free to leave and you, you could no longer be avenged. We talked about the death of Jesus Christ set up for you and I a city of refuge, a place of mercy to, a mercy to come and to be safe. That we could no longer be accused of our sin because Jesus had paid the price for all of our sin. And then we're talking about the, the prophecy being fulfilled in verse 18. In 19, we talk, repent and return. If you repent and return to God, you'll receive three blessings. One, your sins will be wiped away. Two, you'll be refreshed. And three, he would send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. And that is a national, a Jewish national revival that has to take place. That they need to turn to God and then... He will, he will come back and set up his earthly kingdom. And then we, in the few verses there was talking about the prophets and how they had told the, 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 that the Messiah was coming. And as much as they were told over and over again that the Messiah was coming, they didn't recognize him when he came. In verse 26 of chapter 3, For you first, to the Jews, for you first Jews, God raised up his servant, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Ooh, there's a key, there's a key word there that some of the Jewish religious leaders perked up their ears at and didn't like. God raised up his servant. God raised up his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's two groups. Two, two groups of the religious leaders in the Jewish what's the word I'm looking for in the Jewish religion in the in the Jewish clans one was the Pharisees and one was the Sanhedrin and one of them was in power right now can you tell me which one it was say it again the Sadducees and you know why they were sad they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad. They didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe that there would ever be a resurrection of human bodies. 
So in in chapter 4 today, as we're looking in the first 12 verses here, beginning in verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put Peter and John in jail until the next day for already evening. Satan, I got to... Okay, this was the end of my sermon last week. The devil cannot endure the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So he stirred up the Sanhedrin to persecute the apostles. Satan can't stand to see God's work going forward. And what's even greater is when the work goes forward and the people around recognize that it's God doing the work. Satan can't stand it. So it's our job and responsibility with the power of God to make sure that Satan's not happy and that Satan's pretty uncomfortable. They were greatly disturbed. Now, you and I should be greatly disturbed when somebody preaches heresy, when somebody preaches something other than the truth of the Word of God. We ought to be disturbed. We ought to be ticked off. We've got to stop it. Because the truth needs to be heard. And the truth is what? God's Word. This is truth. So they were greatly disturbed that they were teaching the people. And this is kind of funny because the religious leaders were upset that they were teaching the truth. But they were. They laid hands on them. They even threw them in jail. But here's the really cool part. Verse 4. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. What did did Hudson Taylor say? God's work done in God's way and time will have God's support. They preached the word, and people came to faith, saving, or salvation, faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 5. It came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And so they, they had the, the sitting council would have been 70 men of, of the Sadducees. They, they were the ones kind of in charge at this time. I, I don't know if it was quite like the ebb and flow of the Democrats and the Republicans, but in the religious parties in, Jew, in Jewish history, you had the, same, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and right now the Sadducees were in charge. And their, their council sat up, and it would have been a half circle, about 70 men in the temple. So it would have been a little bit bigger than what my hands are showing here. It would have been out there a little bit. But these 70 men set up And then the high priest kind of stood in the middle of that half circle. And and there sat Peter and John. Just just a little intimidating with 70 people staring at you, all right? Doesn't say anything about how many people were in the gallery or whatever, but when they had placed them in the center, verse 7, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Done what? They're still talking about that guy who was lame from birth and went leaping 
and shouting hallelujah, praise the Lord, into the temple and causing a disturbance. He was excited. He was thrilled with what God had done for him. They're still talking about it. That's what, that's what initiated Peter's sermon that got him in trouble. Yes, for preaching the word of God. Then Peter, verse 8, and here is the key. Filled with the Holy Spirit. He wasn't doing it of his own power. He wasn't thinking up these words that he wanted to say and present. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you that all of the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, oh, by the way, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that was getting under their fingernails, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He was healed in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. We know, we've noted, noted repeatedly uh, throughout the book, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, Uh, chapter 2, verse 36, chapter 3, 13, 14, and 15, and now he does it again here in chapter 4. He reminds them that they were the ones that pushed to have Jesus crucified. Now we understand that it was our sins that also caused him to go to that cross. And yes, the Romans nailed him to the cross, but the Jews were the ones shouting for it. The, the, the religious leaders were the ones shouting for him to be crucified. doesn't make sense. But they did not recognize him. And, and in chapter 3, verse uh, 17, when we were talking there, Peter says, I know that you acted in ignorance. He wasn't letting them off the hook. He was trying to help them understand the grace and the mercy that was bestowed on them, even for their actions, the physical actions of crucifying the Savior. But at the same time, knowing that it was their sins, it was the sin of all people that Jesus went to the cross for. Let it be known to all the people of Israel, to you, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. I find it funny that that the, that the uh, Sadducees had such a big deal with the, and struggle with the resurrection. But the thing that they were picking at here, that was just kind of their, their excuse to put him in a jail, was the healing of this man. And, and whose name did you do it and what power? Are you doing it on your own? No. And just like, and I, and I love, you know, back to Nehemiah, he always gave God the credit. For doing the work. And Peter and John here are giving Jesus the credit for the work. They did not do it themselves. It was done in the name of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 6. When he was healed, he, he, 
Peter says, I do not possess silver, but what I do have I give you in the name of the Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Then in verse 16, on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And here again in chapter 4, verse 10, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. We move on to verse 11. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And those were the verses that I read at the beginning from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We need to be rejoicing in it. Because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. There is a, a story of, of, of Jewish legend. I don't know that it was necessarily a, a bedtime story that was might have been a good time to pass it on to, to each of the little Jewish children as they were growing up. But as the temple of Solomon was being built in Jerusalem... There was the workers in the quarry cutting the stones, and when they were cut to the right size, they would be shipped up to the temple site to be placed in the in the building of that structure. They came up all the same size, the same cut, and they just fit right in. One day a stone came up. It was, it was square just like all the rest of them, but it was smaller than the others. And the, the, the builders were like, what's going on down in that quarry? This, this just doesn't fit. This doesn't work. So the legend has it that they took it over to the edge of the valley and they heaved it down into the Kidron Valley. But you know, the south side of Jerusalem is, is the, the dump, the city dump, to put it kindly. Temple took seven years to build, and they keep building, and they're getting down to the end. And the the, the foreman up on top at the temple, he sends down the order for the the corner, the the headstone to the cornerstone. And the guys down in the quarry send a message back, say, "Hey guys, we sent that up to you guys a couple years ago. We sent that to you." You should have it up there. Look for it. So they look around in their inventory and. You know, as they come up, they're probably pretty much putting them in place. Where is that stone? Finally, one old, one old workman said, you know what, guys? I remember a couple of years ago, we got a stone up here that wasn't the right size. It didn't fit. And we heaved it down into the valley. Ah, okay, so the workmen go down and uncover the stone that's been covered by a couple of years of, of rubbish, and they start hauling it back up. And they get it, and they put it in place, and it fits perfectly, exactly to where it needed to be. The chief cornerstone that the builders had rejected and this, this is a story that, that the Jews passed on to their kids. 
so that they understood what this verse meant. That Jesus Christ was the cornerstone and the Jews rejected Him. He didn't fit. He, 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 he was there as a spiritual leader, as a good teacher, and as a great healer. But he didn't fit with what they were looking for. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a conqueror to throw off the Roman oppression. But he was that cornerstone. He was the perfect cornerstone that needed to fit. The very stone that the builders rejected fit perfectly. And if you... if. Verse 12 has always been one of my favorite verses. I know I memorized it in Bible school probably 50 years ago. So I'm going to quote it to you from the King James Version, because that's what I learned it in 50 years ago. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And, And if you tie that, I've never tied that in with verse 11 before until I'm studying this passage. And it makes so much sense. This was the chief of the cornerstone. He came, we, we looked at Christmas time in John 1, I believe it's verse 13, that he took on flesh and he came as a baby. He lived, he did his ministry, then he died, but he didn't just die for us. He rose again on the third day. He was resurrected as proof of the victory over sin. He was the only one that would fit perfectly as the cornerstone. And he died for you and me. He was the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You go back and you look in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk, verse 16, chapter 3, on the basis of it, it's the name of Jesus. And here again, as, as Peter is now defending himself essentially before the Sadducees, there is no other name There is only one way to salvation, and it's Jesus. 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 Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, who was the word. Father, Help us to understand the importance of a single testimony, shining your light into the dark world around us. We may be the only Jesus some people ever see that have that that we're in a position to have an influence in their life to feed into them the truth of Jesus Christ. Father, give us boldness. Break our hearts for those around us that don't know you. Help us to understand and feel that need to share you and to tell others of Jesus Christ.
Thank you for Peter and John that stood up and were willing to testify before the elite of their time. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Next week, we're, we'll look.